You're listening to On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. On Air is back for another week. I'm Israel Fair, staff editor at The Athletic. He's Alex Blair, former feature producer at Hockey Night in Canada. Find us on Twitter. I'm at Israel Fair. Alex's handle is at the Alex Blair. On today's show, we'll talk to Dave Pratt. But first, Alex, where should we start this week? We've got a developing story with the Canucks, with Jake Vertanen, uh, that is taking place in real time. Uh, it's currently quarter to 11 on Saturday morning, May the 1st. And uh, Jake Vertanen is not on the ice at Scotiabank Arena in Toronto for the Canucks. Uh, there are reports that he is taking a leave from the organization uh, this after allegations surfaced last night on social media about an alleged uh, sexual assault encounter in September of 2017. And this morning it is being officially reported through reporter Alana Kelly of Vancouver is awesome. Um, she sits down with the alleged victim uh, who describes her experience with uh, Jake and kind of sort of walks you through the the situation, uh, what unfolded. And at this point, it's, um, I would say it's sort of an ongoing situation. We have yet to hear from the Canucks directly. Um, I believe they've postponed their morning media availability as they are probably gathering information and trying to, trying to decide how to proceed with this. And, you know, we haven't heard from Jake Vertanen at this point either. But this is obviously not great news for uh, the organization as a whole, but I think in a bigger context, it's, uh, it's a bigger discussion point. Um, where do you want to touch on with this? Do you want to touch on this? I, I think it is noteworthy, um, while they're completely unconnected, the Blue Jays sent a very strong message yesterday with uh, their expulsion, uh, removal of his banner, and their complete disassociation from Roberto Alomar after Major League Baseball found him uh, guilty of an investigation of an alleged sexual assault that took place in 2014. And I know we were going to talk about that already, um, but having a major sports franchise in North America do that to one of, if not their most celebrated players in franchise history yesterday, I think that does cast a... I don't want to say a shadow, but it, it casts a um, a very close parallel to what uh, is sort of taking place in real time today with the with the Vancouver Canucks, with Jake Vertanen and with this situation. Yeah, it's uh, obviously serious, um, serious enough for the Canucks to place Jake Vertanen on leave uh, when it comes to Roberto Alomar talking about a former player. But this is not a former player that uh, was not linked with the franchise anymore. And, and that goes beyond just. Uh, the celebrations with his name and the level of excellence at the Rogers Center, mm-hmm. his banner, uh, you know, his presence as the Blue Jays' Hall of Famer, right? Uh, that's uh, that's a, a pretty iconic um, part of history of, and the Blue Jays and their World Series titles in the early 90s. Yeah, um, Jake, Jake's an active player under contract, not just for this season, but at this point for next season as well. Yes, and Alomar still was working for the Jays in some capacity. Uh, that role changed. Uh, I believe last year, late last year and some organizational restructuring, but uh, I covered the Blue Jays for a number of years uh, and Roberto Almar was present often there. Uh, I think most specifically uh, involved with 
youth baseball, uh, sponsoring the T12 tournament that was a showcase for the top high school players across the country. And as a native of Puerto Rico, was also a, a big part of Major League Baseball's uh, outreach in that country. Look, when it comes to Jake Furtanen, uh, this is a player that has been in the public eye in Vancouver since he was a first-round first, first round draft pick in 2014. Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with his play on the ice. Uh, he has been a player that's been talked about a lot uh, over the course of seven years for mostly his play on the ice and the expectations and uh, the hope, I think, in, in the fan base that he would become an impact player. All of that needs to be completely separate from this situation. And as you mentioned, Alex, the Canucks were supposed to address the media in their regular pregame. It's it's a Saturday. The Canucks are playing Toronto uh, on, on Hockey Night in Canada. Uh, they have not, as of uh, just before 11 o'clock a.m. Pacific time, rescheduled their media availability. So it's two hours later. Uh, it seems like they are probably preparing Travis Green for questions. Um, but yeah, this is, this is not, this is not a good situation. Well, in, in that media market too, I, I get it from this standpoint for the Canucks that this story will not just be a local hockey story. This will be a professional athlete accused of sexual assault. Uh, you are in the media capital of Canada. I could see CBC news, you know, different organizations sending reporters to cover the story. And listen, rightfully so, if, you know, given the the situation unfolding, it is a story to cover. But to put people like Travis Green yes. and potentially teammates in that crossfire, um, they need to probably be prepared. And, you know, I, I understand it from that standpoint with the Canucks organization this morning. Um, I will say this, the Canucks have 12 games remaining in the season um, these situations as they all, um, as they usually are, are going to come down to, uh, he said, she said, uh, this is not something that I would expect to have a definitive level of clarity in the very near future. I'd be surprised if we see Jake Vertanen again on the ice for the Canucks this season, just given the, given mm -hmm. the allegations, given the circumstance, uh, given sort of everything involved with the situation. Um, I think the bigger question and not one that can really be answered today is whether this will be the, this will end Jake Vertanen's time with the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, he was on a two-year contract for this season and next season, but even prior to this, it had been discussed that there was a, a fairly low buyout number. I think it's only 500,000 uh, to buy him out for next season. And given these allegations and the way these allegations will be interpreted by a large portion of the fan base, whether people believe he's um, guilty or innocent, um, they're going to be very difficult to move past. And um, that'll be, that'll probably be regarding Jake and the, and the organization. That'll be a bigger question for another day. But I, I, I do think that we've probably seen Jake um, on the ice for the last time for the Canucks, at least this season, given given what's transpired this morning officially in, in the public record. Yeah, that seems completely fair. Uh, we will update as uh, we get 
to the rest of our of our sports headlines here. Mm-hmm. If there's any you know, particular change, we'll, we'll put a pin into in whatever we're talking about and uh, see. I, I don't expect anything. As you said, this is going to be probably pretty slow moving. Uh, there might just be uh, a further statement. There was a statement attached to the, the story that Alana Kelly broke uh, in her reporting, uh, but the Canucks are aware of the of the situation and have decided to place the player on leave. Uh, I don't anticipate that there would be much more than that at this point, but uh, the Canucks do have a game to play. This is the thing that happens in pro sports. It's not like they can stop the season uh, for uh, this kind of situation. So the Canucks are playing the Leafs tonight uh, as we move towards uh, the rest of our, of our headlines here. Uh, the, initial spike in optimism for this team with their uh, prior games against Toronto when they came back from the COVID outbreak has completely dissipated. Uh, There is no, there's not really any optimism with this group, at least when it comes to this season. Uh, It seems very unlikely that Elias Pettersson will play for the Canucks again this year. Uh, At this point, uh, it seems like that's probably wise. Uh, What is there to make of this season, if anything? I think context is really key. I mean, you talked about there was a little bit of excitement and all of a sudden the Canucks were back in the playoff picture, taking two off the Toronto Maple Leafs after their, you know, three and a half week COVID absence. But I think with with perspective now, you look back on those two games and it's fair to say that the first game they definitely didn't deserve to win. They they pulled it out. And the second game they were uh, the beneficiaries of some really poor Toronto Maple Leafs goaltending by David Riddich. Coming off those two games with Toronto, they had a four-game set against the Senators, which sort of took place this week. And the feeling at that point was if the Canucks could take three of four against the Senators, they would keep themselves in the mix and maybe increase their their chance. Um, well, they didn't take three of four. They they lost three of four. And, you know, I think with a loss tonight in Toronto, we will officially be into death march territory for the remainder of the season, which... Quite frankly, a week and a half ago coming off COVID is where a lot of people expected this team to be given the situation that they had been presented with a really condensed schedule coming off three and a half weeks and just where they were in the standings. So I'm not overly surprised where they are. And I think in some ways it's just going to turn the page as to where this franchise is at and the decisions that they need to make going forward. Um, And first and foremost is the coach uh, who's on an expiring contract uh, word uh, leaked this week or was pumped out by Canucks ownership to numerous quote-unquote insiders that they had um, delivered a new offer to head coach Travis Green. And what I can gather in my understanding is that on dollar value alone, the offer is below what Travis Green was looking for. My The other thing that I believe is the case is I think Travis was originally looking for let's say two and a half million over four or five years. I think this is below two and a half million. It may even be just below two million, but I also think it's shorter in term, which in theory may not, that might be the silver lining that Travis Green looks at and thinks, I don't love the yearly amount that I'm getting. I think I'm, I think I'm deserving of more, but I'm also not locked into that number for four or five years. I may actually be out of that number in two or three years. And I think that might be how the Canucks ownership is selling it to Travis and saying, look, the pandemic has really affected us. That's the angle they're taking. Like without a doubt, they're saying, look, Travis, we like what you've done on the ice. 
yes, this year was a setback, but we would like you back. But financially, this team, we all lost money this year. The, the, the environment is different than it was a year and a half ago. We need you to take a little bit less, but we will also do a shorter term. And hopefully in two or three years, economically, we are back to where we were pre-pandemic and we can reward you at that point. The biggest question will be, does Travis want to take that gamble on himself or does he want to take the gamble in the open market that there is another team that wants him and wants him for more money? To me, reading the tea leaves here, I think he's got a real decision to make because I think there may not be as much money on the coaching market as he had hoped, but it only takes one offer. And my sense is he's probably, you know, he or his agent are doing a little bit of back channeling right now to sort of get a sense whether he wants to continue on with the offer that's in front of him here in Vancouver or if he wants to take his chances elsewhere. Right, because uh, from everything we've heard, from him publicly, it hasn't been a lot, but he's stayed to the you know the line that uh, he wants to be here. He'd like to stay here, and then we've heard that maybe even more emphasized at the reports as well that uh, this is this is where he wants to be. Again, uh, I, I'm sure that there's truth to that. Some of it is probably also negotiating posturing. Um, For sure, yep. yeah, I think you I think you nailed it. This is a coach who has a pretty a pretty good track record now. Um, he's well-renowned across the league. He feels that that deal should be in that, that 2 million range, 2 million plus range with a long-term. And this is what we have seen, right? I mean, coaching contracts are even more predictable, if you will, than player contracts. Yep. There is a certain threshold. Start at a certain level. If you make it past three or four years, then you make the jump. And then if you, you know, I mean, we've seen Alain Vigneault sign multiple major, major contracts right. as, a, as a coach. Now, after having established himself with the Canucks, goes to New York, uh, signs, you know, a big, big contract at the high end of coaching. Uh, yep. We've seen that with uh, took, Joel took another team to the final, right? So he's taken two teams to yep. the final now. So he's sort of legitimized himself as a, a bona fide top NHL coach. Yeah, it's sort of like there's kind of three tiers. And Travis came in at the bottom. Yeah. Um, now he's felt, and it would seem like the reputation around the league agrees that uh, he has earned the right to make the jump to that next tier. The difference right now is that uh, because of the pandemic, there are, at least in Vancouver, the thought is we're not quite prepared to, to go that, that whole way like it was in the past, where if you're, mm-hmm. if you're established at this level, you get rewarded to this level. And that's, uh, that's a question that, uh, that he's going to have to have to answer. And there are some pros in Vancouver, uh, the, the star players that we have talked about. That's a pro, uh, a goaltender that's under contract now. That's a pro, uh, a hockey market that uh, if you win, you will be rewarded. Uh, there are certainly cons with that. Um, some of it, there's some risk to not having that long-term deal. Uh, we don't know where the uh, the financial, the economic situation is going to go with the NHL over the next number of years, uh, especially from a coaching perspective. If we're seeing the Canucks say, look, right now we can't commit to a coach to this level. And the uncertainty of the offseason right now, there's there is the Kraken. Uh, yep. You know, now officially the 32nd team. So they, they paid their, they've paid the, their big, their big ticket to, to join the, the big boys uh, ahead of, ahead of the expansion draft. Uh, that's an opening. Buffalo is uh, a team, but like, see, like Buffalo's a perceived opening. Yeah. But like, yep. if you're Travis Green, are you going to, are you going to go to Buffalo? 
And, and listen, Buff- Buffalo is a far less attractive opportunity than Vancouver, money notwithstanding. Yes. I, I think there are two big things that potentially could keep Travis in Vancouver. One is the team on the ice, because I think this team, and we've talked about it, it's it's no secret. They they do have some challenges. They do have some warts. But generally speaking, the core of this team is young. They are going to get better, and this team is on the rise. And I think he obviously has a um, a professional and an emotional connection with this group. The second one, which can be debated is his connection to BC and what this means to him personally as somebody who grew up in Castlegar. And does that hold some significance for him? And I think one of the, the biggest negative to me is just this organization and how this organization has handled the last, I mean, you can say a year, but you could say a year to the last three years and some of the internal turmoil, um, you know, starting with, the Trevor Linden situation. And I know Travis was, was fairly tight with Trevor and how that situation played out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw it with Judd Brackett and we've now seen it. And it's been reported that, you know, just how this organization handled COVID with the players and there being a bit of unrest. I don't know where Travis fell in all of that. We do know that Travis was hit particularly hard with COVID, how he felt the organization handled that and the organization he's working for, does he believe in them and the direction, those types of things? Um, I'm not sure we'll ever fully know, but his decision whether to stay or go may give us a little bit of a little bit more insight into that. I'll throw in another pro in the case of staying in Vancouver is that, as I said, if the team wins, you're getting a ton of attention. The Canucks are a winning team. He will be talked about a lot. Um, yeah. and, and his name will be out there. And the flip side to that is that if the team loses, I don't think that there is enough there. Um, to your point about management and ownership, I think Travis Green would get the benefit of the doubt and get another yeah. opportunity somewhere else where he, it's not going to fall squarely on him. And that's, that's still part of the decision-making, you know, he's got to, he's got to check the, you know, see all the pieces on the chessboard. Where does he fit? Uh, what is the market this summer? Is Seattle a viable opportunity? The other thing too, is you, you and I chatted about this before. Travis is a fairly savvy operator. He understands how the league works. He understands the power brokers. He understands all of that. And when I look around, one of the biggest arguments I have for Travis even though he probably doesn't love the offer that's in front of him. My biggest argument for him staying is that when you look at the jobs that may be open elsewhere, Buffalo, not a great situation. Columbus with John Tortorella on his way out. Um, that is a very low uh, attention market. If Rick Tockett leaves Arizona, that is also a very low attention market. Those are not scenarios that put Travis in the best way to step forward and move up the coaching carousel. I think Seattle is a unique one. But again, I think there's an argument to made to be made that Seattle would maybe more likely go with a more established, bigger name, historical coach, whether it's a Gerard Gallant, whether it's somebody else. I think Travis is in the mix, but Seattle's the one that holds the the biggest hope for me. If if Montreal decides to make a coaching change, their owners already on record saying that the GM and coach need to be bilingual. That would rule Travis out. Yeah. So I don't I don't see currently a great other opportunity that could become available in the NHL outside of Anaheim because of the, his family living in Southern California. And that would have probably have bigger 
uh, impact personally for Travis. But there isn't necessarily another mm-hmm. marquee job out there that would move Travis forward professionally that is better than what he currently has in Vancouver. Okay, the other Canucks story, if you will, of the week, uh, Alex Edler's fight with Wayne Simmons. Uh... Let's get into this. Because this... Okay. And, and look, I... I kind of shut off Twitter for most of the week because I thought it was just a garbage. It was a manufactured story. I don't know where you stand on this. We haven't talked about it. Oh, I think it's it. completely, I think it's asinine. I think it's the dumbest story. Yeah, okay. But I do think it's worth talking about in the sense that, um, listen, the hit that Edler laid on Zach Hyman was a dirty hit. We mm-hmm. know that Alex Edler's not a dirty player. He was at the end of a three-minute shift. He was gassed. And sticking out your knee can traditionally be a bit of a reactionary play. We've heard that from other players. But it doesn't excuse the fact that it was a dirty hit and it took out one of their players. They're hoping, one of their key players, Zach Hyman, at this week, they're hoping Hyman is back for the start of the playoffs, but we'll have to wait and see. Edler was suspended by the NHL for two games for that hit. But as we saw the first game against Toronto, Wayne Simmons clearly sort of sig- uh, singled him out and sort of felt that, you know, he hadn't paid the piper, so to speak, and that he needed to drop his gloves and face the music, to which Alex Edler did. And it happened. Wayne Simmons, obviously a little bit more experienced fighter, uh, tuned him up pretty good. And, you know, I didn't hear Alex Edler complain. The Canucks as a team, at least publicly, did not complain. But it raised the issue of, did Alex Edler need to fight in that instance you know had punishment already been served by the nhl with his two-game suspension uh the topic of the code so to speak you know players settling scores on the ice came up the part that i had a problem with and look i i'm generalizing widely here is that there seemed to be a, a narrative coming out of vancouver that this was garbage that alex edler had to fight wayne simmons and that Wayne Simmons had fought 77 times and Alex Edler did not have a career fight and that it was a mismatch and he should not have had to should not have been put in that position. But I honestly have a hard time believing if the rules were were reversed that the Vancouver fan base would not have wanted a pound of flesh out of a Toronto Maple Leaf that knocked out Quinn Hughes for 2 weeks or knocked out Brock Besser for 2 weeks. I I don't know how you feel. But I have a really hard time knowing the fan base in Vancouver and how volatile they are, that that would not have been the narrative. And I know times have changed, but this was, and granted, listen, I understand it was 15 years ago. But this is exactly what happened with Steve, Steve Moore and Marcus Nasland. You know, more recently, and you can argue it a little bit, maybe there was more intent, but Duncan Keith and Daniel Sedin. Vancouver was, you know, they had pitchforks at the gate. They wanted retribution. I don't know. They fought. Edler didn't get seriously hurt. I think the Toronto Maple Leafs felt like, okay, we settled this and and hockey moved on. I don't know. Did you have a problem with this? Uh, I mean, I just think the storyline is dumb. Uh, I will say, I, I look at it two ways. The first way is me as a consumer of the product. I don't, I don't need that as as a consumer. I don't need this. Uh, you didn't need the fight. No, I don't. I'm not. I'm not. Tu- I'm not personally not tuning into a hockey game to see a, a player have to step up and fight. But I, I understand that in some respect, I'm in the minority there. Um, okay. But did it did it turn you off though, or were you just? Yeah, sort of I, like, I, I think it's stupid. It makes me roll my eyes at hockey. I just go, okay. you guys are so dumb. I know it's the code, and 
and hockey people will tell me that I don't get it and I haven't been on the ice and I haven't done this and I haven't done that. And fair enough. And I get it that the players have a code. And one thing that I have learned in about a decade now covering professional sports is that athletes believe really stupid shit. Uh, in, in baseball, they believe that based on where they play in the lineup, that they have to ha- take a certain approach and stuff yeah. like that. And, and, and athletes believe the stuff that they have been told on television that I don't think that they have to believe, but they, they believe it. And that's what matters to them. So that's why there is that situation. Um, so I, I understand it, but I, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I, I've never been that part of it. Uh, you mentioned a couple of examples. I think of, uh, Brock Besser took a hit from Trevor Lewis of the LA Kings. Yes. And that caused, you know, that was a big spike in, in uproar. And I had the same reaction then. I thought it was, it was a bad hit. The player should be suspended. But what, for me, the players solving it on the ice over the course of a number of games is, I just roll my eyes. I don't care. Just play the game. I want to watch the game. I want to see goals. I am not there to see players taking matters into their own hands. And I acknowledge that I have seen the criticism of that stance, that people that think that don't get it, haven't been in the room, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think you're right. I do think that if, let's say, if the player was Brock Besser, uh, if he was on the, the, ed, the receiving end of that kind of hit from, I don't know, Jake Muzzin, someone like that, yeah. you know, a big, a big, maybe not quite as lumbering defenseman as Alex Edler is at this point of his career, but a, a big defenseman who makes a bad play, uh, but there's going to be a, a, a significant portion of Canucks fans who would be upset. Oh, um, if, if the Canucks were headed for the playoffs this year with hopes of like taking a deep run and they lost one of their top six forwards and it was, you know, it wasn't a, you know, just an unlucky incident in the corner where somebody fell poorly on the ice. Like it was like, let's call it. I mean, we said it, it was a dirty, it was hit. a bad hit. Yeah, it was a bad hit. You know, like, I, I mean, I guess the only other thing that I would say, and I, look, I'm not comparing Alex Edler to like a Matt Cook, for example, but there's Matt Cook who made a career of kind of running around and doing those types of things. And the NHL, whether it was through fine or suspension, tried to discipline him. But I don't think that the players felt that that discipline ever added up to or had the effect on Matt Cook that it needed to. And there was a feeling like, you know, you need to answer the bell and be accountable on the ice. And, you know, I'm not sure you, I I guess the debate is, can you pick and choose who that is? Because, you know, clearly Alex Edler is not Matt Cook. Yes. But it was a dirty hit. The Toronto Maple Leafs felt like, you know, he needed to answer for it. And, you know, he did. Uh, the other thing that I thought was particularly notable was that, you know, there is a narrative coming out of Toronto that Toronto has been perceived as a, a softer team, a weaker team. Yep. And that has been a bit of the mantra this year. And I wonder if Wayne Simmons did that, not so much to sort of extract, you know, punishment on Alex Edler, but to sort of rally his group and say, look, you know, we as a group are not going to stand for this type of thing. We are, you know, we're going to sort of stand together here. We're going on a run. And regardless of who it is on the other side, if somebody attacks one of us, they attack all of us. And look, I, I didn't really have that much of a problem for it. I don't need to see it in the hockey game, but the fact that it transpired, I'm like, cool. Okay. It took up a little bit of the game. We moved on and it seemed to deescalate the entire situation. So 
I think your point on the Leafs being labeled a soft team is uh, is a good one, and that is is something that I I have wrestled with with hockey in general and the, the labeling of teams and this part of of the hockey culture uh, where that line is. I mean, it's something the Canucks have been hit with. Uh, the Sedins got hit with a lot because uh, they didn't want to yep. fight. Uh, look, I rather watch the Sedins than about. You know, ninety nine point nine percent of players in the NHL, but hockey there there is a culture in hockey of physicality, of toughness, of physical engagement, of fighting, and and it does come down to your team's identity. You know, for what for everything you say about the the Sedins, and I do not argue they were great players. The team had decided that they were going to play whistle to whistle, mm-hmm. and that that was that had become part of their identity. They were going to allow the other team to take penalties, and they were going to punish them on on the power play. Toronto, I think, is trying to shift their identity right now. Yep. And, you know, you just have to look at the players they brought in. Wayne Simmons is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. But Wayne Simmons is only a perfect example if he backs that up on the ice. Sure. And you do that through incidents like this. Really quickly, we had the anniversary of uh, Alex Burrow's dragon slaying goal earlier this week. We are now into the three-month anniversary that will take place until June 15th of the 2011 run, <laughs> 10 years. Yep. The question I had for you, and I saw this in an Ian McIntyre article this week, I thought it was really interesting. He wrote about the goal and fairly definitively referred to it as the second biggest goal in franchise history. After Pavel Bure's uh, double overtime winner against Calgary, Game 7, first round, 1994. Mm-hmm. And listen, I have the utmost respect for Ian. He has seen this team for a longer period of time than I have, and I really respect his opinions, his views. I think he's a terrific writer. But you know when you read something and you're like, I think that's wrong, and it just sort of strikes you? I had that feeling as I was in the car reading this. Uh, I wasn't driving, by the way. <laughs> uh, I was in the pa- I was in the passion- passenger seat, I should mention that. But it just struck me as, and it, it kind of raised the debate. I put it out on Twitter about what do you think is the biggest goal in franchise history? And listen, there is a there is probably a, a portion of the fan base, and it's probably a fairly large portion of the fan base now, that wasn't alive or wasn't of an age of significance when Beret scored that goal in 94. And so that obviously adds a bit of a dynamic. But having lived through both of those and having been at an age that they both held a very large portion of significance. Mm-hmm. I think the Burroughs goal was far bigger because of the stakes involved, the ramifications, the potential, uh, well, the, the potential, the potential ramifications on the organization had the Canucks not won that game against Chicago. I don't know if you have some thoughts. I know you're a little younger than me. I don't know if the Burray goal predates your age of being yeah, able I don't, to. I don't re- recall. I was uh, one, so I don't have any memory of the Burry goal. I've seen it a bunch. Uh, yeah. I understand the historical significance of it, but for me, I mean, the Burroughs goal was a, you remember where you were. Uh, yeah. Everybody does. And those are the teams that I grew up with. Uh, that was, you know, the rivalry. Is that, that's got to be the biggest goal then for you in Canucks history? Yes. Or is that, yes. Yeah. And what would be number two? Is it Bieksa? Probably. Okay. Because I was having this debate online. For me, it was Burroughs 1, Burray 2, and then 3 to me was a debate between BX's stanchion goal or Greg Adams sending the Canucks to the cup final against Toronto. Right. 
And I think you could make the debate either way. In some ways, I think the matchup with Toronto maybe held a little bit more significance than the San Jose Sharks. But um, those, to me, were the the biggest goals. Uh, just a reflection back then on, on Chicago, that series, that goal. What do you remember? What stands out for you? Oh, uh, just the complete beginning of of chaos uh, unbelievable unbelievable run uh classic vancouver where uh, things looked so good at the beginning and seemed to unravel there and there was legitimate fear that it was it was going to end prematurely in a season where they were the best team they were the best team in that regular season uh they were uh you know they they were they were a juggernaut they were they were a machine they would go into third periods and they didn't trail a lot, but if they were down two goals in the third period, you didn't worry. Yeah. Uh, and they got goaltending uh, in that series. Um, you know, Chicago is going through a bit of their own reflection times right now with uh, Brent Seabrook having just, you know, basically announced his retirement. He, he's no longer be playing and they haven't been a particularly successful team since uh, 2017 and obviously their last cup in 2015. And here in Vancouver, we've had a little bit more time to look back and, yep. and reminisce on, on those teams and those groups. Uh, it was, um, it was unbelievable hockey. Um, that's, uh, but that I think people will you know, remember forever in, in Vancouver that, that, that has that legacy and that Burroughs goal is for Canucks fans. Anyway, the cherry on top. I remember well, I should say this before we before I give me my memory of it is in 2011 the the Blackhawks had only won that first Stanley Cup. They were still young, mm -hmm. and not not to say that that first Stanley Cup was a fluke, but I think if anything, hindsight has shown that that team was obviously a better, deeper team than we even realized at the time. You know, they went back, they won the cup in 13, they won it again in 15. Mm -hmm. um, some of the some of the uh, the depth players changed, but the core of that team remained the same. We didn't have that appreciation for that team in 2011. We knew they were the reigning Stanley Cup champs, but they were also a fairly young team that had gotten over the hump fairly quickly in their evolution. So I think in hindsight, you look back on that and it, it may actually add a level of importance for, for Vancouver. My memory actually takes place probably two years after that series, three years after that series, um, the NHL does a, a media event where they bring in some of the players from each team at the beginning of the year for the broadcasters. Mm -hmm. And th that year we were doing it in Toronto and Corey Schneider was there, I think for the devils. So he had already moved on to New Jersey. Okay. So 2013, 14 season. Yeah. And I remember asking Corey, we were asking questions for different features and I asked him about that goal and the significance. And I think he stopped talking about seven minutes later. <laughs> and Corey, Corey Schneider is a really articulate yes. guy. Yeah. And given the fact that enough t time had transpired, and given the fact that he was now with another organization, he was so raw and so honest. And he said all the things that I expected where he's like, we understood that the organization was, was done if we didn't win that series. You know, against that team, having blown a 3 nothing lead, mm -hmm into a game seven, leading one nothing with a minute and a half to go on the power play. If we had lost that game, management's gone, the Sedins are gone. You know, we, we were acutely aware of that dynamic. And he just put into words just a very articulate answer about why it was such a monumental moment for the team, for him personally, even though he wasn't playing in the game.
And it's all, it's honestly one of my regrets at Hockey Night in Canada. I remember when he finished, I said, I literally can just take his audio and play that and just cover it with like different images from that series. And it would be an unbelievable feature because that's how well he articulated it. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, I just never had the chance. <laughs> the time he didn't line up. We just didn't have a matchup that worked. But um, yeah, it'll be, it's interesting to reflect back as we go through the calendar now. We're now into May. Uh, the Nashville series, I know for a lot of people, is is less memorable. It's the forgotten but... series. It's the Kessler goal, basically. Exactly. But then you get into the San Jose series, and then obviously the cup final, which holds um, you know mixed emotions for a lot of the Vancouver fan base. Uh, really quickly, there's we're getting ready for the playoffs. Just curious about you know the playoff races that you see, the potential matchups that are, are of interest, um, and any of the injuries. I know the Jets were hit this week. Uh, both Lowry and Ehlers out with sort of injuries. We're not sure how long they're going to be. Gary Price is dealing with that concussion in Montreal. We touched on Zach Hyman. Some of these teams that are gearing up for the playoffs are missing fairly notable pieces, um, and it's a little unclear how long those guys will be out. What What are you looking forward to over the last, you know, ten to twelve games here? Ehlers is that's a uh, if that's a loss. I know he's they've set out for the regular season. He's had a heck of a year. Uh, he's He's been a pretty consistent player, but has kind of flown under the radar and uh, has put, uh, I guess, a few more goals behind uh, kind of that overall package that he's had. Um, if if he's not there for Winnipeg, that's that's tough. He's he's such a driver for that team. Uh, yeah. I, I look at the the teams down south in, in the states, and there's still some jockeying for position in in terms of matchups. You know that that East Division is uh, any of the four teams could end up playing against each other and there would be uh, be some fun matchups there. And then there's uh, the division with Florida, Tampa and Carolina yeah. where, okay, could we, could we really see Florida and like in Tampa play each other in the first round that, that could be, that could be fun. If, if the, they've never played yeah. each other in the playoffs before the Florida team. No. And, and if the playoffs started today, that would be the two, three matchup in that, in that discover central division, Carolina sitting first, they would have, they would have Nashville. And you'd get Florida, Tampa, who, you know, Tampa's obviously, you know, I think a lot of people would think they're a Stanley Cup favorite. Um, they've got the pedigree, they've got the history. But Florida's, you know, put together a really nice season and they're coming very quickly here. And uh, yeah, I have to say that that's a that's a matchup I'm looking forward to as well. I actually think if, if we get Colorado, Minnesota, mm-hmm. Minnesota is a team that I think a lot of casual hockey fans, especially north of the border, just because of the way that divisions have been set up this year. Minnesota's very quickly become a fun team to watch. Yeah. Yeah. No, they, yeah. they've, they've been, uh, they've, they've kept it together. I think they, you know, started off really hot, had a bit of a dip and then they've, they've come back and they're, yep. no one's, I think going to put them as a favorite against Colorado no, or Vegas, but for sure should, yeah, should, should make for a good matchup. And I don't think anyone's going to want them to be Colorado. Cause I think everybody wants to see yes. Colorado Vegas. <laughs> But I do think that that could actually be a, a, a fun series to watch as well. So, um, all right, shifting on I, really quickly with the draft, I called around a little bit this week just to kind of get a sense. We've got the under 18s going on down in Texas right now. Um, but as the as it stands today, the Canucks are ninth worst in the league. But that's not factoring in the fact that Seattle will have the third overall pick. So Canucks would sort of get bumped down to 10 if everyone fell in line. But there is going to be a lottery for those two top picks. And with the fact that the Canucks are, you know, they've got 12 games to go, looks like they're starting to run out of gas. That's not even factoring in 
you know, the turmoil and the situation that's now unfolding with Jake Bertanen, there is an expectation that maybe they don't play particularly well down the stretch here now that the playoffs are out of out of grasp and maybe they drop a few more spots. How optimistic are you with the Canucks and where they finish? And, you know, um, my understanding, I, I talked to a couple draft experts this week and they feel like if you're in the top 10, you're getting a good player. After 10, it's just a bit of a gamble now because they, a lot of these players, they just haven't seen enough of them and they haven't played enough hockey over the last year, year and a bit. Yeah, if I'm a Canucks fan, I'm probably I'm probably relatively optimistic that they're going to get a, a a good player. Don't know on on a timeline. I think that from what I understand, there's a couple of defensemen at the top of the draft, a couple of forwards at the top of the draft, and then you know the variety goes from there. Um, so what what position mm-hmm. they end up with, uh, I think on paper. Uh, you'd be looking at the blue line. <laughs> this is this is where the team needs to needs a, another impact player, another player that can be a first pair, a second pair type guy. And this is that's going to be another conversation that we're going to be having as soon as the season wraps up. You know, there's there's a lot of them for this team, and we're back to looking at the first round. I remember specifically uh, the the Quinn Hughes year, even more so than the Vasily Podkolzin year. Uh, but the Quinn mm-hmm. Hughes year being one where there was so much talk discussion analysis on who the Canucks should pick. And that was a year where it was pretty much, okay, they're going to get their shot at one of the defensemen. And there was, I, I think probably five, four or five that were talked about. Yeah. Um, Evan Bouchard, Noah Dobson, Quinn Hughes. Uh, yeah. They end up we all knew Darlene, Darlene was going one. Yep. But yeah, no, yeah. Noah Dobson, Evan Bouchard were in there. Um, yeah. There were, there was a chunk of them, right? Yep. So, and uh, by all accounts, uh, it's been reported Jim Benning, Canucks general manager, is down in Texas taking in the under-18s mm-hmm. this week. I think they've got one or two more days of sort of the round robin before we get to kind of the bigger games, which um, obviously separate, you know, sort of the cream of the crop from some of the, you know, Switzerland's, the Germany's, that type of thing. And, uh, you know, that's also an opportunity for some of these players who have not played a lot of games to make a statement and stand out in front of uh, apparently a fairly large NHL audience of general managers Mm -hmm. and scouts. NFL draft went Thursday, uh, bled into Friday, and I think even some of the later rounds may be dragging on into today. Um, Just your thoughts, anything stand out for you? I know we talked about Javon Holland last week, the, the Canadian from Coquitlam who was playing at Oregon. Yeah, I mean, it was a the draft's a quarterback draft, uh, the 49ers, and uh, coming up in our final segment, uh, I've got something 49ers related to to dig into. They yeah. were kind of the the mystery team, smoke screens. Not sure exactly yes. where they would end up going with their pick. Uh, you know, they end up going with Trey Lance, who is um, like you know maybe not the the last evolution of the NFL quarterback but pretty darn close to it you know just a yeah. a, a beast athlete can run can throw he's big uh this is but, but coming out of a smaller school yep. right like his yeah he's coming out of North Dakota state so not a not a powerhouse college football school and but his stock was definitely rising and you're right you know the 49ers at the third pick were the ones sort of seen to be where are they going? And the consensus was, or the belief was that they were going to pick the quarterback out of Alabama, Mac Jones. And, but there started to be those whispers that they might be looking at this um, less herald, heralded, but maybe a higher upside in Trey Lance. 
And sure enough, that's that's where they went. And it was interesting for me because then Mac Jones fell all the way to 15 mm-hmm. and he ends up with the Patriots. <laughs> of <Bill> course. Belichick. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was notable. I thought the Bears making a really big splash. Yep. Um, they paid a bounty to move up from the 20th pick. Uh, they moved up to number 11, but they also gave up. So to move up to 11, they gave the 20th pick, a fifth round pick this year, their first round pick next year, and a fourth round pick. Um, but they clearly like the quarterback out of Ohio State, Justin Fields. Yeah, I mean, um, there was uh, there was a case uh, during the college football season that Fields was playing his way into the number two slot. Uh, Trevor yeah. Lawrence has been the number one slot probably since he put on a Clemson jersey for the first time. Uh, there was the thought that he's just as polished a, a, a pro uh, quarterback prospect that we've seen in a really long time. And so they were, you know, kind of everyone's fighting for two. Uh, he ends up sliding a bit in Chicago is, uh, was Brian Burke that called Vancouver a goalie graveyard. Well, Chicago yes. is the quarterback graveyard of all time. Uh, they have God, it's, uh, pushing on 40 years now of uh, not yep. having an established quarterback. Uh, they've made Super Bowls. They won a Super Bowl with a great defense in 85, and they made a Super Bowl in the late 2000s with Rex Grossman as their quarterback. That's right. Also with a great defense. Uh, and I, was try- I was just trying to think because I remember Sexy Devin Rexy, Hester. Yeah. yeah, Devin Hester's well, uh, Dev- kick returner. Yeah. Kick returner, yeah. But I, d- I couldn't think of the quarterback offhand. Yeah, Rex Grossman. They had Kyle Orton there. Uh, then they had the Jay Cutler era, and I was gonna say Jay they Cutler. made the you know, they played in an NFC Championship game. Um, but they've they've always, yeah, they they have not uh, had that guy. So they end up they end up going there. And uh, I mean, let's but, let's but get to the the big quarterback story out of the draft is the the yes. Aaron Rodgers uh, situation. He enjoyed uh, hosting Jeopardy oh. so much that uh, he's 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 gonna call it quits. <laughs> Okay, okay, so bring me up to speed here because I was just getting dribs and drabs of this. And to be honest, I didn't dig into it as much as I needed to. But um, explain what's happened with Aaron Rodgers in the last couple of days, what's been reported, and why there's debate whether he will be back in Green Bay next season. Okay, so the reporting out there, uh, and this is not... It, it was because it was heading into the draft that it was taken as this big bombshell. But this is not something that's new. Uh, Aaron Rodgers' discontent with the Packers goes back a couple of years. Uh, last year's draft, they pick a quarterback uh, as sort of his eventual replacement. And the thought is that uh, he doesn't feel like he's been getting enough help. The, that's through the draft in terms of drafting right. players. They drafted heavily on defense, correct? Very much so. And the Packers yeah. are historically a team that does not do much in free agency. And so there has not been any moves to you know, help Aaron Rodgers get that second Super Bowl. He was great last year. His numbers were phenomenal. Uh, there was the narrative out there that if you looked at some of the underlying numbers, his play had declined. Not this season, but last season and the season before that. And this year, he pretty much shut those up. He was right up there with Patrick Mahomes. Yeah. As you know, the top guys in the league, if you just looked at a lot of the numbers, Josh Allen from the Bills was right there. Um, that's much less of a track record than Aaron Rodgers and even Patrick Mahomes, but he was right up there with those guys at, at the top of the league. And uh, he's at the point in his career, I think, where he it looks probably looked at what happened with Tom Brady, who went to Tampa and got, you know, he, he inherited some, we- some weapons, some, some great playmakers down there, but they also made some moves 
to make sure that that offense was fit to his specifications. This Aaron Rodgers thing replaces the Russell Wilson story of him in Seattle being unhappy with personnel. Um, I w- I'd still be stunned if Aaron Rodgers is somewhere else. But this is this is the way of the game now. There is a lot of posturing with uh, with organizations. The players have a lot of power. Aaron Rodgers has a huge contract that uh, is is difficult to move, difficult to walk away from. But this is this is where we're at. This is obviously a clear sign, yet another clear sign that uh, the player the player wants something, and the organization is going to be at least publicly in this way, uh, you know, analyzed, scrutinized, and talked about. Yeah, the the um, the Aaron Rodgers situation definitely sort of rose to the forefront, garnered a lot of headlines. It will be interesting to see where this goes moving forward, because much like the Russell Wilson Seahawks saga. There seems like there's a lot more bubbling under the surface. We're getting just sort of a taste of it. And uh, I do wonder if there's a possibility that there could be a change there. But again, uh, there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, The last thing I thought was notable, there were three Canadians taken in the NFL draft. And I know we talked about Javon Williams last week, but um, there were two other guys taken. And... uh, First off, there was Benjamin Saint-Just from Montreal. He went to Washington, the football club, uh, in the third round, 74th overall. And Josh Palmer out of Brampton went to the LA Chargers with pick number 77. Uh, that was the most Canadians taken in the NFL draft going back to 2014, which was notable because that was the year that the Kansas City Chiefs took Laurent Duvernay-Tardif mm-hmm. in the sixth round, 200th overall. And obviously, he turned out to be a really good player yeah. for them. and. And in some ways, a bigger story just because of what he's done off the ice or off the field with, you know, his medical career and, and taking a leave this year to help with COVID in Quebec. And uh, but three Canadians go in uh, in the NFL draft and the highest being uh, Javon Holland, who went number 35, uh, 35th overall uh, to Miami. So the Dolphins picking up a Canadian safety uh, who played at Oregon. Looking forward to this next, we're going to be joined by David Pratt, the longtime voice at, uh, well, he was with TSN during the 90s, and then with TSN, and then the team, or sorry, the Team 1040 that became TSN 1040 for a long time, uh, finished up doing their morning show. I actually had to look back at the date, because I was I was curious to know when his run had ended. It was March 2019, so it's been just over two years since, since David was last on the air mm-hmm. in Vancouver. But uh, never short on opinions, uh, never short on sort of uh, interesting information, interesting takes. And given everything that's transpired in media, specifically in Vancouver, but with the Canucks, uh, and in some regards, the CFL, the BC Lions and the Whitecaps, uh, wanted to have him on to pick his brain. And he will join us next right here on air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Welcome back to On Air with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Joining us on air this week is Dave Pratt. Hello, Dave. Thanks for taking the time to do this. And thanks for having me. All right, let's get right into it. The Vancouver Canucks, uh, an unbelievable up and down season, the COVID season. Uh, There's going to be a lot of things that people... Uh, remember from this crazy year uh, for you, what's, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Well, I, I think 
the way that the season ended for them. Uh, Adam Gaudet getting it in his head that it was okay to go and party his ass off with his little buddies and then walk into the dressing room with COVID is beyond anything. Um, I've seen some crazy, crazy stuff in this business over the years, but nothing like this. It just absolutely ended their season, and it's too bad because it's also going to cost uh, head coach Travis Green his job. Um, there are going to be changes in the offseason, and the first guy that's going to be out the door is Travis Green, and that's too bad because I like Travis Green. I think he's a coach's coach. Um, I think he's done some amazingly good things with this, this organization. He doesn't deserve to take the fall for it, but in this game uh, – it's not about what's right or wrong. It's it's all about you know winning and losing. And when you lose, somebody pays the price, and it's usually the head coach. And I think that uh, Travis Green ultimately is going to be out of a job. If changes need to be made, David, uh, should it be Travis Green or should it be higher up the ladder and general manager Jim Benning, who's finishing up his seventh year in charge of this organization? Ultimately, the the responsibility goes with your general manager, and that's why I point a finger at Jim Benning, but that is not how it's going to happen. Uh, Jim Benning's still got two more years left in his contract, and in this game, uh, when things don't work out, you fire the head coach. Travis Green uh, has a contract that's about to run out on him, and this is the easier way to go. Uh, they will fire Travis Green at the end of the season, which is too bad, because I like Travis Green. Um, he's a coach's coach, um, gets it, and it shouldn't be on him, but that's not, as I said before, the way this game is played, and Travis Green will be fired at the end of the season. One of the narratives that has arisen over the course of this year is that the Aquilinis and the Aquilini family have been particularly hit by the pandemic financially, and they have uh, lowered costs. There's been a number of layoffs across the organization. There is a belief that the um, this sort of standoff with Travis Green is over money. And if Travis Green is to not re-sign with the Canucks, that they will look to find a cheaper, less expensive option. Um, when you look at the coaching hire, do you see the Canucks getting a big name or do you see them potentially going on the cheap if they do move on from Travis Green? I think that they've got to go after a big name. And there are a number of big names that are out there um, because your head coach is so much the face of your franchise. Um, he's the guy who's got to deal with the media every single day. And take a look at the guys that are that are available right now. Gerard Gallant is available. I mean, Claude Julian's out there. Mike Babcock is available out there. I mean, again, you're talking about big names. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux, there's, there's a lot of that out there for them in terms of finding some sort of a, a brand that, that, that they can sell. But having said that, <laughs> it's one thing for us in the media to go and speculate, but uh, how many times do we sit back and go, WTF, what, what just happened here? They hired who? So those are my thoughts. Do I think it's actually going to happen? Wait and see. <laughs> be be, be uh, ready to be surprised. You just listed a bunch of big name coaches there, Dave. Uh, as of April 30th, the Seattle Kraken, officially the 32nd yeah. team in the NHL. That means that they can... Uh, start signing players, start making trades. Uh, we'll have the expansion draft in a couple of months as well that uh, people around the league have been anticipating for a long time. And they don't have a head coach yet. So Travis Green, if he's not with the Canucks, Seattle will fit? Or do you see them maybe going, uh, they got a lot of options, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I, I think that uh, your general manager, Ron Francis, is smart enough to know that he needs to go and get himself a name. 
and uh, the names that we just threw out there. And on the top of the list is obviously Gerard Gallant. I mean, you go take a look at, you know, what he did in Vegas. Um, he's going to be coming back from the World Juniors. No, he he's the guy that I honestly believe is going to be the new head coach in, in Seattle. And Ron Francis is smart enough to understand that. Um, because not only is it a good hockey move, it's also a good business move. So... Do I want to give, you know, the curse of a Pratt guarantee? Uh. <laughs> sure, I'll do it. I guarantee it. Gerard Galantz. There, there it is. <laughs> there you go. I, I did want to ask you about Seattle. As, as someone who, you know, spent a, a huge portion of their career in sports talk radio in Vancouver, yep. um, I, I think it's often overlooked how isolated Vancouver is out here, sort of on the West Coast, West side of the Rocky Mountains. And they've, you know, as much as there's been rivalries with Calgary, there's sort of a, a national rivalry with Toronto. There hasn't been a very geographic rival. And I'm just wondering the significance of that um, through your eyes and also the positive impact that it could have on a, an organization like Vancouver and the Canucks, um, holding them to a higher standard, holding them to, um, you know, be better than maybe they've had to be in the past because there's, a team just down the road that's doing it the right way. Just curious to your perspective on that. Well, there's always going to be pressure to win. That's the business of professional sports. But the economic benefit of having a geographical rival, go. I'm just go take a look at the best rivalries in sports. And in hockey, the classic one is just, you know, on the other side of the Rockies, you know, the Battle of Alberta. Um, for this organization to have gone over 50 years without having that geographical rival is truly amazing. I mean, you sit back and say, okay, who, who is the Canucks' biggest rival? And it didn't matter which team you would you would go and pick, okay, because of a, of a playoff run, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. The fans in that city don't see it the same way. Yeah. Um, and that's the great thing about a rivalry. It, it has to work both sides for it to actually be a true rivalry. So to get Seattle is absolutely amazing for them from a business point of view, but for a fan point of view as well. Keep in mind, I mean, I, I mean, the last time they had a rival in Seattle was over a hundred years ago. That's amazing. And most fans in the city don't even realize that, you know, Seattle with the Metropolitans won a Stanley Cup in 1917 and the Vancouver Millionaires <laughs> won a Stanley Cup in 20, in 1915, over a hundred years ago. Um, so it's there and they'll play with it as much as they can because it's the cosmetics. But look, economically, you couldn't ask for more. The only thing they've got to do now in Seattle is actually build themselves an NHL arena. As we head into a summer where there is a, a sense that change could be coming, um, I wanted to ask you about ownership of the Canucks. This is a, a family that has been part owners going back to the early 2000s. Uh, they took over full ownership sort of near the end of the, uh, the Dave Nonis era. Uh, and they've made two significant changes within the organization. The first bringing in Mike Gillis in 2008, which at the time was a fairly unconventional hire. And then they brought in Trevor Linden to replace Mike Gillis in 2014. Um, they've never, they've never really opened it up to a, a quote unquote, a quote unquote public search um, or executive search. They've always sort of had someone in mind, and both times they've gone non-traditional or not sort of what would be a highly touted candidate. Um, just a, your thoughts on this ownership group and how important they're sort of charting a course is at this stage of the franchise. Well, I, th I think that they're going to stay pretty much, you know, on track with where they've, they've been going because general manager Jim Benning is, is not leaving. He's got two years left on his contract 
and he's not going to be leaving anytime soon. And keep in mind, and here's the crazy part about Jim Benning, with, again, with all of his history with scouting, go take a look at the draft picks that they've had over the last few years with, with Pedersen and Besser and Hughes and, and now Hoglander and, and all of it. Um, so from a, a rebuilding process, they, they've gone and done it the right way. Uh, unfortunately, they, they go and fire their, their head scout, which to me, I can't rationalize that in any way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, right now, Jim Benning still has a job and two years left in his contract to get this thing done. Um, and uh, and that's the way that they're going to go with it. The, the guy who's going to pay the price for missing the playoffs this year is going to be their head coach. Going back to the bubble, you know, great series with Minnesota, upset St. Louis, push Vegas to seven. This season obviously has not been the success that I think a lot of fans were hoping to see. When you see the team on the ice and taking into account management and ownership, how far away do you think this this team is from a Stan, from a Stanley Cup? Whoa, um, at least, and this is again if they get the pieces in, in place, um, they're at least two or three years away from taking a legitimate run at the cup. Um, and like I said, the, um, the core pieces that they have are very, very good, especially now that we actually found out that Brock Besser can, can go play a whole season and stay healthy and stay in the lineup. Didn't know that was possible. So at the end of the day, they've got some nice pieces, but they've got a lot more heavy lifting to do. And at the end of the day, what they cannot do is make the same mistake they've made in the past, and that's to try to fast track it. There is only one way to win a Stanley Cup. In a, in, a, in, a, in a league that is controlled by salary cap, and that is through the draft. You have to be patient. And that's the thing that this organization from ownership has not had, that patience that's required to go and pay the price. And if they're not willing to do it, they're not going to win a Stanley Cup. But at least they've got some nice pieces to start with. Uh, we had the anniversary earlier this week of the famous Alex Burroughs Slay the Dragon goal. Uh, this was something yeah. that you had a front row seat for as uh, sort of the yeah. voice of Vancouver sports in Vancouver. Um, yeah. Ten years on from that run in, in 2011, I'm just wondering sort of your strongest memories, uh, how you look back on that era of Canucks hockey, um, the things that come to mind, and, and maybe with time and hindsight, how much differently you view that or, or the appreciation level you have for that era of the Canucks. Well, I think what it does, again, it, it reminds me of how great these fans are. Um, um, if we could only, you know, go through a Stanley Cup run and not hold a riot, you know, that, that would be nice. If we, <laughs> if we could just do that, get to a cup final, not riot, actually win it and then have a parade and not a riot. Baby steps, Dave, great. baby steps. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> you say, Let's just get back to the dance first and then we'll figure out, you know, what, what kind of a party that we're going to have. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I would really like to see? I would really like to see this. I would love to see Alex Burroughs as a head coach here in Vancouver. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, he's an assistant right now with the Montreal Canadiens, yep. as you know. But he is just one of those great icons who leads with his heart. The fans love him. He is now, you know, on a path to become a head coach in the NHL somewhere. Um and I think that he's going to make a great head coach. And I would love to see that happen right here in Vancouver. Well, to your point on that, I, th- his name has been floated a little bit this week in the sense that sure. um, as an inexperienced assistant coach in his first year, he would not demand a big ticket. And if financial, um, you know, the compensation that a new head coach is going to require is a factor for ownership, he would be uh, potentially absolutely. an underpriced candidate yeah. that you could sell yeah. to this fan base. 
Well, the thing is, is that you have to win. And Alex Burroughs right now is just beginning to learn the craft of coaching. Um, if you could get him um, and give him a job, you know, that, that is one step higher up than an assistant coach that would put him in a position to become a head coach. In other words, two steps to become a head coach as opposed to just one, then I think maybe you can attract him. But at the end of the day right now, what the Canucks need is an experienced NHL coach who knows how to come in here and right this ship. And as we were talking about earlier, there are some serious names that are available out there, big names. But the thing with those big names, especially with Gerard Gallant on the top of that list, is they're also going to want a long-term contract with big money. So there's the X factor that gets played into it. Uh, as much as we can sit here and, <laughs> and move these pieces around the chessboard, uh, the Aquilinis of the guys are going to want actually have to you know, write the check. So uh, do I see Alex Burroughs eventually winding up as a coach here in Vancouver? Um, absolutely. This, this is home for Alex Burroughs. You mentioned the fans, Dave, in 2011, the Canucks fans were, you know, in full force. But going back 10 years, that was a pretty good year for the BC Lions. They won the Grey Cup. And that was a pretty exciting time for a soccer fan in Vancouver because the Whitecaps made the jump to Major League Soccer. There was a lot of excitement about uh, those two teams in particular. Here we are 10 years later uh, with the pandemic. The Whitecaps have not played a game in Vancouver in quite some time. We have no idea when the Lions are going to be playing a game of any kind uh, after having the entire CFL season wiped out. When you look at where those two organizations and franchises in the city are at, what what do you anticipate is in their, in their future? Well, first and foremost, with the Whitecaps, uh, they have got solid ownership with very deep pockets, and they are playing in a league that is established. They're not going anywhere, and they're going to be just fine. Uh, the way that they've handled it, terrific. Got it. Uh, I, have, I have no concerns in terms of the future of the Whitecaps and the, the league that they're playing in and all of it. The Lions are a much different story. The CFL is in serious, serious trouble. I know that all the talk with the XFL, but the XFL is no, no magical answer. I mean, if, if you just want to go and Google the XFL and then find out exactly all the, the dysfunctionality that's going along with that, it's just bizarre. But having said that, the CFL is a great concern to me because as a kid growing up, I grew up as a CFL fan. And to see this league in the situation that it's in right now, uh, can I see the league um, folding? Absolutely. I know that they're, they're, they're kicking their season back, uh, trying to buy some time. But um, and they and they've got five years left. I understand, you know, with TSN and and, and all of that. But the uh, the league is in a, an absolute critical stage, and if they don't get it right and fix it in a hurry, this league will fold. On the CFL, it's clear the pandemic has had a huge financial impact oh, on on yeah. businesses, sports franchises, leagues, um, you know, businesses outside of sports. But I I am curious. To know, did you see the CFL being in long-term trouble prior to the pandemic, just in the direction they were headed? Oh, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because the thing with the CFL, when you go take a look at their fan base, it's plus 50. Yeah. Their inability to connect with that younger demographic, okay, is just beyond me. And here's the thing that that frustrates the the hell out of me when it comes to the CFL is that they don't seem to understand that professional sports is 12 months a year. There is no such thing as an off season in professional sports. 
they disappear. They play the, that Grey Cup game they played in 2019 was spectacular. Yep. I mean, unbelievable game. Um, you know, it was the the halftime show couldn't have been better. I mean, the the celebration, the crowd, all of it. The CFL is a great game. They've got a, a solid fan fan base, okay? But that fan base is plus 50. And if they don't go and do the things that are necessary to attract that younger demographic and play by their rules, okay, which is 52 weeks a year to keep them engaged, the CFL will not survive. The Lions, when I was a kid, uh, were a big part of the, the consciousness. And that's not too long ago, you know, through the 2000s with Damon Allen and Dave Dickinson and the Wally Buono era, if you will. Uh, and I had lots of friends who are in their late 20s, early 30s now who love the CFL. And yeah. they have completely fallen off. And they, yeah. they watch the NFL now. They're, they, they love football, but they're attracted to the NFL because it's, it's such a good t- television product. And it, it's got yes. the storylines and the stars and the, the, the heroes and the goats and go down the list that they've got great television programming. And while I think across the country, the CFL numbers are still pretty good, especially when the Rough Riders play, uh, <laughs> they failed in this market to capitalize on people that were invested as young people. Uh, they, they did not give them a reason to stick around. Single biggest issue for the CFL are the two largest markets in Canada. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we start with Toronto. And then it's, it's Vancouver. How can you have a market the size of Toronto and zero fans at your games with the Argos? And again, it gets back to what we're talking about. Their inability to, to market their product is beyond anything that I've ever seen, ever. Uh, and is it about getting a new commissioner? Uh, that would be a, a very good step. Uh, they've got a great business partner, you know, with, with Bell and TSN and all the things that go along with it. Um, Glenn Suter is a very good friend of mine. You will not find a better color guy, a better salesman, a better pitch man for all of this kind of stuff. They've got some great pieces there. But man, oh man, until they go and fix, you know, their commissioner and get a guy in there who, who sees the vision that's required with it. And you go take a look at the NFL. You've got a blueprint of how you do it. I mean, geez. It just it, it amazes me that this 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 league that I grew up with is going down the path that it's going on, and it will be a very sad day for me and a lot of other football fans in, the, in this country if the CFL folds. But if they don't fix it, and I mean fix it in a hurry, um, they could be gone within a year. I sense that you're not a big believer in the potential merger with the XFL, but given everything that you've just said and and the problems marketing this game, selling this game to a younger audience. Um, is there any upside to the XFL possible potential merger there for you as far as marketing, um, the way they display that game? Do you, do you see this yeah. being a Hail Mary? Here's the thing is, is that uh, the XFL has the potential to be a really good business partner for the CFL. But I think that the, the mistake that a lot of fans are making, and I think a lot of people in the media are making, is that the idea that, well, we cut the deal with the XFL, we'll, all, our, all our problems are solved. No, they're not. You still have got to get these fans back into these seats. This is a league that is completely fan dependent. Their television deal, with, you know, with Bell, is an absolute lifesaver for them right now. Yeah. But you've got to get butts in seats, and that's got to get back to each individual team doing the things that they have to do twelve months out of the year. As I said before, it's not a six-month season. That's not how that's not how professional sports operates. It's fifty-two weeks. 
It just it just drives me nuts that this league literally disappears for six months a year. Crazy. Something that uh, Alex and I talk about quite a bit on this show, Dave, is the changing media landscape, especially in sports. And uh, we're seeing a big change in the U.S. when it comes to the national TV broadcasters. ESPN's back in the game. Uh, this week, confirmation that Turner Sports, uh, most well-known for broadcasting the NBA, yeah. has gone come in as, a, as an NHL partner. Uh, won't necessarily affect the most of the people that listen to us and that follow the Canucks, but it's still a pretty significant move for the NHL to go in that different direction, move away from NBC, who they'd been with since the 04-05 lockout. Uh, do you anticipate that they might actually take some chances, try to do some things differently, try to be a little bit more entertaining than the product that they've put together to this point? Well, the the entertainment aspect of it obviously is critical because they're in the entertainment business. Uh, but the actual economics that you're talking about, um, it is, you know, what, what Gary Bettman is all about. Uh, do you want to know why he's still the commissioner of, of the NHL? Because he does the one thing that every commissioner gets paid to do, and that's put money into the pockets of the owners. That's it. He, on, he only has one job, put money into the pockets of the owners. And no commissioner in the entire history of the NHL has done what Gary Bettman has done. Is he popular with the fans? No, doesn't matter. Where 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 the Stanley Cup is presented, he he always gets booed. Always got it. Understand it. But the owners love him because he understands the business, and that's where, where Gary Bettman's background and all of it that, that 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 is connected with it. This is a business. The CFL has to has to figure that out, or they just simply will not survive. In regards to media, it's been uh, it's been a very quick and very fast-changing landscape. Um, as somebody who spent the better part of a couple of decades in the business in Vancouver, uh, I'm really curious to know your perspectives on what you've seen over the last couple of years here and how quickly the decline has taken place. Uh, amazing, uh, to say the least. Um, the thing that you have to understand about the, the broadcast industry is that it's um, it's it's a retail business. Um, and the, the entertainment business, uh, which is what, Sports Talk Radio, which is what you're doing right now, um, is something that is is only successful if you are going to make you know that move to be the, sort of the next Bruce Allen. Uh, let's go and find the talent, and then go and make the money with it, and be willing to go and manage the talent. Uh, the broadcast industry is, at the end of the day, retail, and um, when the economics don't add up. What's the first thing that a retail company will do? They will cut back and cut back and cut back. Right. And that's what we're seeing. Um, social media, um, the explosion. I mean, there are 2 million podcasts out there. But at the end of the day, it's the wild, wild west. And that is not what the broadcast industry is. It, it, it has always been about going to the CRTC and getting the license. Mm -hmm. A license that was always considered like a ticket to print money. Um, and that no longer is the case because of, of the, the technology that goes along with it. And, and I'll, I'll close it by simply saying this, that in this business, as in life, technology is either your best friend or it's your worst enemy. So it's, uh, it's simple to do the math once you've done that. You mentioned the word talent there, and that's something I wanted to ask you about, because one of the things that I've noticed across the industry is that it has tended to be, or I shouldn't say tended to be, but a lot of the marquee big talent um, the people that have driven ratings but have also, um, you know, had a, a fairly high salary have been the ones to be cut. Um, I think it's fair to say that, you know, one of your departures from 1040 here was 
Um, it was over a contract negotiation to some degree. Um, when you get back to the whole idea of talent and entertainment and drawing an audience, it seems like the industry is sort of cutting themselves at the knees uh, by removing some of those personalities and some of those people that are larger than life that really drive the ratings. Just, just sort of a general thought on, on sort of the, the decimation of, of top talent w- across the industry. Well, I think it's just the difference is um, who now owns the companies. Uh, the broadcast industry, you know, for 100 years was basically family owned businesses. And now it's owned by, by companies and corporations. Um, and um, it's, it's just the, the way that the industry has changed uh, structurally. So the, the families that, that I used to work for uh, are gone. And, and the, the, the kids that, that you know, got the companies, they sold it to corporations. And the very um, fundamentals of, of the industry have changed. And it just is what it is. And it's, uh, um, it's bizarre. I mean, to uh, woken up a few days ago and, and to hear 1040 suddenly just go off the air and start playing comedy albums. If somebody had asked me, you know, <laughs> <laughs> did Stephen King write this novel too? Uh, I would have said, you're out, out of your mind. That will, that will never, ever happen. I mean, are you guys nuts? You guys have been drinking too much. What's going on here? And that's exactly what happened. So um, it is the business of the business. And if you want to find the truth, follow the money. You spent a, a good chunk of the latter part of your career at 1040 and, and a variety yeah. of roles on you know a couple of really well-known shows. When that news came down, what was what was your reaction? It was a real WTF, okay? <laughs> because I heard about it and then I went online and I'm listening to this, right? And I went, did this just really happen? Um, because I, I can remember uh, when Chum launched you know, their network of, of stations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they went they went through a, a similar situation where they shut down a bunch of the stations that weren't working. But the one thing that was uh, was great about 1040 is that, you know, we had put a hit show together at Afternoon Drive that was, you know, making money and all the other things that went along with it. And not only did, did we survive, you know, that shakeup, but then we went and got the Canucks and all the other things that went along with it. Yep. Um, so you're, you're, you're thinking, okay, you know, as long as we're going down this road, and we're having success, great. But the difference between corporations and family-owned businesses are a little different, um, and it just is what it is. And it's the um, the ability to adapt, and this is what we're doing right now with the, this particular interview. Um, would have been unthinkable ten years ago mm-hmm. that we're actually doing an interview this way. So, more than anything else, the future of our business is going to be continually connected to how we interact with the new technologies and grow from it. That's the future and that's where the money is. Over the course of your career, Dave, what part of being in media, being in broadcasting, do you miss that has changed and what do you think is the evolution that has been the most beneficial? Uh, What I miss are the characters. (laughs) Uh, The the thing about uh, our industry uh, for the last, literally the last, hundred years has been that uh, there have been some wild, wild characters that I've had the privilege to, to work with and great people. Um, uh, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. Um, it was, to say the least, and has continued to be incredibly entertaining. Um, but again, the, the one thing that uh, as we adapt is that you have to be much more 
politically correct in so many different ways, both on and off the air. That's the one thing that uh, uh, <laughs> I roll my eyes at and go, okay, got it, okay. Um, and it's, it, it is what it is. I, I, I can remember um, the, uh, when we first launched uh, 1040, um, uh, I got a phone call from Brian Burke and he was mad at me, yelling and screaming at me about something. I don't even know what it was anymore. And I, I phoned up my, my GM and I said, Brian Burke just picked a fight with me. Do you, do you mind if I go on the air and, 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 and have some fun with it? And he said, no, go ahead. So we went on the air and, 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 and took a shot back at Brian Burke and away we go. Um, and next thing I know, you know, Jennifer's on the air. And, and it just, but that was all part of being a, a family run business that you could do stuff like that. Corporately now to do that, go down that road, not a chance, not a chance. Yeah, it, it actually gets back to <clears throat> my, my thought on the, the topic of talent. Um, and as you touched on characters, we're such a big part of that yes. and taking yeah. chances. Um, you were someone that walked a, a fairly tight line at times. Um, but when you see the events of, you know, the last year and a half, and I, and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, in like the Don Cherry um, saga, for example. But I think, you know, whether you agreed with Don or you disagreed with Don, you wanted to watch Don for the most part. Um, he was he was entertaining to a degree. And do you get the sense that there's a, a fear of this cancel culture right now where, you know, if you step out of line, there's not sort of an understanding of, you know, occasionally we're going to cross a line and we may need to apologize, that type of thing. It's just you make a mistake, you're out the door. And that that sort of has people running scared a little bit. Well, understand that. It's a corporate mentality, okay? And if you're working within a corporation, you need to know, you know, where the lines are always, okay? Um, but sports talk radio, and you want to talk about Don Cherry, again, another example of it. Um, the whole idea of it is that we're in the entertainment business. Well, the idea of being in the entertainment business is to stir the pot. You want to get people emotionally invested in your show. So you've got a good cop, you've got a bad cop, and the what I have found over the many years that I've been doing this, it is infinitely more fun to be the bad cop. And those guys that were not afraid to be the bad cop were the guys that you're always talking about. And Don Cherry would be on the top of the list. Um, but it was understood that it was done with a twinkle in the eye. And as, and as long as it was done that way, that you understand that this is how Hollywood works. I mean, try to imagine Star Wars without Darth Vader. Really? Okay, you just got a bunch of spaceships flying around, bumping into each other. Throw Darth Vader in there, and now you've got a billion-dollar enterprise. It's the entertainment business. And corporations, um, you would think, would learn from Hollywood, but that's really not the way that they it's, it's structured. Uh, politically, it, it doesn't work like that. So you just have to be much more politically aware of what you can and what you cannot say. As we see in industry where salaries are on the decline and we see a city like Vancouver where the cost of living is on the rise, I'm, I'm curious, when was the peak financial era of being a media member in Vancouver? Oh, um, probably 10 years ago. Yeah, and, and I think that's it, it, it gets back to what we were just talking about again, the ownership of the companies and, and all of that. Um, and um, there was... Uh, a time when uh, uh, media companies would would bid for talent. Okay, so if you were doing really well over a, working for this radio television company or whatever it is, uh, it was not unusual for the other company to come after you and make you an offer. Uh, those days are, are long gone. Um, it's um, 
like I said, probably about 10 years ago when it peaked out and then uh, the corporation sort of took over and it, and it just became more like a business. Uh, I think that's probably as close as I can get. When you look back on all the things that you've done over your career, Dave, what what stands out to you as, as making you the most proud? Oh, um, there, there's some, some great moments to, to it all. Um, but I, I think... Uh, the, the single proudest moment I had uh, was getting my very first job in Vancouver at the ripe old age of 20 years of age uh, to walk in to the very powerful CKLG back then um, and, uh, and the CKLG FM, which is now CFOX, uh, to walk in there as a kid and to, uh, to be able to have the privilege to work with a great guy like Kerry Marshall. That was the single defining moment. And then from there, everything just kind of worked out. Um, and it was also pretty good that uh, I got a phone call from Jim Van Horn telling me about this TSN company that was just launching. And would I be interested in, in doing some television there? And I went, yeah, let, let's do that. So, so those are probably the two moments that I, I look back and say with a smile on my face. Yeah, it kind of worked out. Was that the studio on Richards, the CKLG? Okay. Yes, yeah. yes, 1006 Richards. Right down yeah. uh, from Richards on Richards, and uh, the, it was the eighties. It was aye, aye, aye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we as as we chatted as we chatted the other night, we had a mutual friend in in the late Kerry Marshall who passed away a couple of yeah. summers ago, and uh, I know he was a mentor for you, and and he was someone yeah. that uh, was a father of of one of my good friends growing up, and but also took me under his wing yeah. as I got into broadcasting as well, and, and just a terrific yeah. guy. Um. I, I, I am curious about the transition. We talked on 1040. I'm curious about the transition for you from TSN to 1040 and what that looked like. Was it, did you go from one to the other or was there a transition period in between? Oh no. The, uh, the situation with, uh, with, with um, t uh, 1040 is that it came along at, at the time when TSN uh, canceled our studios uh, because uh, Dave Randolph and I were anchoring the national desk. Uh, I don't know, six, seven years, whatever it is. We were doing all of that. Mm -hmm. And, shut that down and it was sort of like okay where are we going to go from here um because you're not going to pay me what you're paying me right now to do some reporting and post game and stuff like that right. but at the same time 1040 launched i mean literally at the exact same time so it was an instant instant move and um and again it was it was a phone call next thing i know we're doing an afternoon drive at, uh, at 1040 and uh, and we took it to number one I, I did want to ask you because you worked with a few people. The, f the first show I remember you doing was with you and, and the Moach. Uh, it was the yeah. afternoon show. I know Donnie would appear as a fairly regular. Um, yeah. But I did want to ask you about some of the people that you worked with through the time that would be familiar to our audience. Um, and sure. the first one that comes to mind is the Moach. And I'm just wondering <laughs> what you remember about that show and, and also just working with Bob and the, and the dynamic between the two of you. Well, I'd known Bob before, right? And... Um... What I like about uh, the Moj uh, is that he's a character. He's a personality. Uh, love him or hate him, whatever it is. And I and I love working with people like that. Um, um, the the thing uh, with uh, with Moj is that um, he was um, ambitious and and wanted you know his uh, uh, his opportunity to go and really you know. Be a star in the game, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, those those are the guys that that will that will survive in, in, in this kind of an industry, and they will find ways to succeed. Um, there's a difference between um, entertainers and broadcasters. You know, broad, broadcasters, you know, 
will read scores, find, got it, teleprompter. Uh, entertainers will push, will, will push the envelope. And uh, the Moj was a guy who liked to push the envelope, still does. I'll follow that up with um, Donnie Taylor, who's probably, if not the most recognizable broadcaster yeah. sort of from the Vancouver scene. Um, he's got to yeah. be right there on sort of the Mount Rushmore. Um, obviously someone that you would have known as well, but uh, you guys had a long run together and um, you yeah. guys had a very successful run. Uh, just sort of the dynamic with you and, and Donnie. Well, Don, along with Jim Van Horn, in my opinion, are the two best sports anchors in the history of Canadian broadcasting, period. Um, they have a likability to camera uh, that is beyond belief. Um, and, you know, I appreciate that because it's not something that comes naturally to me. Uh, it's just not, that's not my character. Um, I, I'm much more of the love-hate kind of guy. I want to stir the pot. Likeability to me is just not what's up. But when you're selling <laughs> When you're selling highlights, you have to understand that the highlights are the star of the show and you're selling them, which means your audience has got to like you. It's like any salesman. It doesn't matter what you're selling. If they don't like you, they're not going to buy what you're selling. It doesn't matter. Cars, real estate, doesn't matter. And Don Taylor and Jim Van Horn are the two best sports anchors in the history of Canadian broadcasting. I was very privileged to work with both of them. What I remember about uh, Pratt and Taylor was the simulcast on, on television. Did that... Yeah. How did that evolution come to pass where you, you know, you just mentioned you, you were at TSN, they shut down the studios, you go over, you work at 1040 and 1040 was a success in this market. Maybe not immediately, but it was obviously the 20 year legacy. Looking back, uh, there was some staying power there. And all of a sudden you and Donnie are, are doing a radio show on television. What was, what was that like? Uh, you know, the thing is, um, it was a great great move because anything that drives your profile, especially television, is going to drive your ratings. So all of that, from a business point of view, it was absolutely great. But the great thing about doing radio, um, as, as you know, is um, you don't have to get dressed up to do it. You can have a baseball hat and put it on backwards and no one's going to say anything. It's like you're looking oh, at whoops. me right now, Dave. <laughs> and that's the one thing I, I've always loved about radio is that um, there's a real... Infor informality that goes along with it, right? You can show up with your t-shirt and your baseball cap on backwards. Everything's great. Um, whereas television, you have to understand is that you, you've got to go and um, understand the cosmetics of television. Um, yeah. And uh, I anchored the national desk for, I don't know how many years uh, for TSN. And um, it, it was a job because you're selling highlights. Uh, sports talk radio was fun because you got to stir the pot. Um, but uh, like I said, uh, in terms of uh, Don Taylor, easily uh, one of the top two uh, sports anchors in Canadian broadcast history, period. Some people won't know this. I, I came up uh, and had the opportunity. My first job was at CTV Sports in Vancouver, which at that point had the affiliation with TSN. And so I got to work fairly closely with Farhan Lalji um, as sort of a young guy. And he, I remember at the time, sort of reflected back on being a young guy working under you coming up and talked a little bit about the 94 run. I'm, I'm just curious about what you remember about a young Farhan and, um, you know, sort of the sort of what he's grown into as a broadcaster as well. Well, the thing with, with Farhan is that um, he really wanted it. I don't know how well you know Farhan. I gave him his first job 
and the reason I gave him the first job is for the exactly what you're just talking about. Um, he's a guy that really, really wanted to do this and was willing to do the heavy lifting and the hard work to make it happen. And when I left TSN to go full time at 1040, um, uh, he replaced me and is still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it has worked out absolutely fantastic for him. But don't kid yourself for a second. Uh, the one thing that, that Farhan does, um, and a lot of it doesn't get the camera, but he does all the, the, the hard work behind the scenes and, um, and has grown his own brand in his own way. Yeah, and, and been, been a big proponent for football along the way, which I know is uh, obviously yeah. really close yeah. to his heart. Um, yeah. Last one for me, Dave, and this has been really enjoyable. Um, one of your sort of trademarks was Pratt's rant. And uh, yeah. I'm just curious if you had to kind of come on on Monday and encapsulate sort of what you'd want to talk about or, or what you would choose to rant about. I'm just curious the topic that uh, would sort of pull on your heart at this point uh, in time in the Vancouver sports market. Well, I, I think it gets back to where we started talking about right off the kick of this thing, and that has to do with what the Canucks are going to do with their head coach. Um, I, I, it, it frustrates me because it's so easy to go and fire a head coach at the end of a, of a disappointing season. And uh, is, it, is it fair? No. Is it reality? Yes. Uh, that would be that would be my rant, and somewhere along the line, I would work in Adam Gaudet into into the into the equation because think about this for a second. Uh, you've got a player who decides to go party his ass off, brings COVID into the room, and you're the head coach, and you get fired. Okay, yeah, I got it. Gaudet got traded, but you got fired, and uh, the the unfortunate part about the the entertainment business or in business period, um, things happen. Does it does it make it right? No. Is it fair? No. But it is reality, and it is our business, and uh, and the wheel keeps turning. Dave, uh, thanks a lot for coming on. Uh, I will say, for me, uh, doing some some hits with you over the years when you had the morning show at ten forty was uh, a great privilege. I enjoyed it a lot. It was a huge opportunity for me, so I was uh, very appreciative of all those opportunities as well. And yeah, thanks for jumping on with us. Really enjoyed the conversation. And thanks for having me. You're listening to the On Air Podcast with Israel Fair and Alex Blair. Wrapping up On Air this week with our final thoughts, interview takeaways, media spotlights, and a preview of what's ahead. Um, Fun conversation there with Dave Pratt, uh, a guy that I grew up listening to. And as I mentioned, uh, did my first hit with Dave on 1040, I believe 2015, leading into the Blue Jays playoff run. And it was, uh, it was, it was, I'm not too big to admit that was a pretty significant moment in my media career, uh, to, to have done a radio hit in Vancouver on the morning show with the guy that I grew up listening to, uh, and was on pretty consistently with him for the rest of his time at, at 1040, uh, doing hits, whether it was when I was in Toronto on the Blue Jays or the Raptors. Uh, did quite a few hits actually during the Olympics in 2016 and then uh, a little bit on the Canucks as well uh, when I came back to work for the Athletic. But uh, yeah, I mean, guy's been in the market for a long time. Really, really fun to hear some of the some of the media stories that he had to share. No, for sure. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Matt Sakaris about the sort of voice of record, if you will, in the market. And as much as I think Matt has become that in recent years, David Pratt was that for a long time in Vancouver. 
And whether it was when he was with the Moj, whether he was with Don Taylor, and in sort of the latter years when he did that morning show with Brother Jake, you kind of wanted to hear what Pratt was saying, you know, and not everyone loved him, but I thought it was interesting when he brought up the term characters about media, because I think David was very much a character. Mm -hmm. Um, and he was an entertainer as much as he was a broadcaster. And uh, he was someone I hadn't talked about. I, I reached out to him the other night. We actually had a, a mutual friend in, in common and we had a nice chat and he was gracious enough and um, to join us. And yeah, it was, it's really interesting because I look at, you know, David really rode that, that wave of media when it was a really prestigious, well-paid career. And, you know, as we've seen, I, I hope it gets back to that, but the wave has crashed fairly significantly here um, and across the world in some ways, and especially in those local media markets. And Vancouver's been particularly hit hard in the last couple of months. It uh, it made me reflect back on a conversation that that I had with Stephen Brunn, who's joined us. And I was talking about Stephen's, the last few years Stephen had at the Globe and Mail, which was, you know, and I think you'll remember this because you're a print guy and this isn't that long ago. But even like 2005 to 2010, like the Globe Sports section was a was powerhouse. Amazing. Like Michael Grange, Jeff Blair, Stephen Brunt, Dave Naylor, Matt Sakaris in Vancouver. Um, they had Lauren Rubinstein on golf. Um, the late Jim Christie, uh, who I, you know, I worked with covering Alpine skiing. Like they had a murderer's row of like great Canadian sports writers. And in the span of it felt like two years, it was just gone. And I remember talking to Brunt after he had made the jump from the Globe and Mail to mm -hmm. Sportsnet full-time, and this was after the 2010 Olympics. And he said he saw the decline in newspapers coming, but he said what, what I thought was going to take 10 years happened in two. He said it happened so quickly. And I've sort of reflected back on that as we've gone through this with television and radio in Vancouver over the last little bit. And I, and I thought of Pratt because, you know, there was a guy who you know, felt really strongly about his value when his contract ended. Um, I'm not exactly sure the year, but this is when he was doing the drive show with, with Don yep. Taylor and they weren't able to come to a resolution. They both held firm and they moved on. I think Barry McDonald ended up replacing Pratt uh, with Don Taylor for a while. Pratt went to CKNW for, for a brief stint before he came back to 1040 doing the morning show with, um, with brother Jake. But yeah, it's an evolving industry and, and there are less characters. I, I just sort of feel that there's there's a lot of great, young, youthful um, people that have a lot of potential. And but some of those larger than life characters, I just don't feel are there. And in some ways, you know, I think Pratt sort of represents the last sort of vestige of that a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Um, I, I'd never yeah. considered uh, media as, as retail or at least broadcast media as retail the way that he put it. I found that yep. to be a, a very interesting framing uh, of of the business, of the way to conduct business, but specifically, you know, the ins and outs, the financials, the economics, um, and uh, he's lived it right for a long time. Uh, yeah, you know, he mentioned his his career uh, really taking off as a reporter and eventual anchor for TSN. I don't have memories of that though. Uh, he mentioned Jim Van Horn. Jim Van Horn was one of my professors in university or at college. So I, I have a, mm -hmm. I have a, a relationship with Jim Van Horn who I, I, I remember Jim Van Horn on Sportsnet. I don't remember him on TSN. Um, right. But I knew you know, Dave Pratt very well as a sports talk guy in this market for yeah, 20 years. Mm -hmm. 
What did, what did you make of his feeling that Travis Green is going to be the guy that takes the fall? I, I'm not willing to go that far, but uh, I, I don't have, you know, the fair guarantee, like the Pratt guarantee exists out there. Yeah. It's, it's, cal- it's a calculated one. I mean, it's certainly not impossible that Travis Green is not no. back, right? And so that's, uh, that would be another wrinkle in this offseason for sure. Mm-hmm. It, it's funny. I, it made me think a lot as he said that, and we were doing the interview because I think I would be disappointed if that's what ownership does to sort of tie the bow on this disappointing season. If they think that, you know, letting Travis walk is sort of what will sort of wipe their hands clean of this year. I, that would be disappointing to me, but to Pratt's point from a financial standpoint, they don't have to pay out any additional years, his contracts up. So if they need a fall guy, financially he's the guy that makes sense but uh i think you know i'm hoping at least there's a few more few more scenarios that could potentially unfold um really quickly uh there was an article this week we were talking about the 49ers earlier this week and you want to spotlight seth wickersham's uh he had a feature in espn on kyle and mike shanahan the father-son combination in the nfl i didn't see this piece so you know, enlighten me a little yeah, bit. Yeah, really good piece. Uh, I mean, if you follow the NFL, Seth, Seth Wickersham's pretty much must read. He's had, you know, big stories on the Seahawks, big stories on the Patriots. I believe he's actually publishing a book about the Patriots that's to come out in the fall. Uh, he's also done some work with Don Van Natta on the Dallas Cowboys and Jerry, Jerry Jones. This was a, you know, a, a single byline feature on the Shanahan's looking at Kyle Shanahan's big decision heading into this draft, having traded up to the number three spot, which quarterback he should take, and sort of contrasting that with his dad's legacy, Mike Shanahan, longtime coach of the Denver Broncos, and then ended up coaching in Washington. And Mm -hmm. both of them uh, known to be incredibly bright offensive minds, uh, those Broncos teams. I mean, they two Super Bowls with John Elway, who is one of the all-time greats, and... uh, really gets kind of meditative on the coach's role uh, in running a team and in, in scheming an offense, but also the importance of having that quarterback. And Mike Shanahan's Broncos teams after Elway retired were, were good. They were competitive. They made it to conference championship games, uh, but he never got back to the Super Bowl. He goes to Washington. Uh, he has success with a number of sort of run-of-the-mill quarterbacks they end up going and making the big trade for Robert Griffin the third great rookie season ends in a playoff loss to Seattle and uh, the bottom sort of fell out. RG three was never the same player again. He got injured in that game and it does. Uh, yeah. I thought it was a really good insight into both of those men. Um, there is sort of the thought that uh, Mike Shanahan was every bit the offensive genius that Bill Belichick might be the defensive genius but Bill Belichick ended up with Tom Brady. And while, of course, Mike Shanahan won his Super Bowls with John Elway, that second act never fully took place. And it d- dives into the difference or, or the, the lines between good and great and how right. it can be just as frustrating to be good for a consistently long time than it can be to be awful, to be on the bottom end, because you feel like you're so close to being in that, that special echelon, that elite tier. 
and uh, Kyle Shanahan has made it to the Super Bowl with the 49ers in Jimmy Garoppolo, a game where they were leading heading into the fourth quarter and lost because Patrick Mahomes rammed it down his throat and uh, was the offensive coordinator in Atlanta for that team that uh, blew the infamous 28 to three. Yeah. And that uh, was Tom Brady, who was, you know, the nemesis of, of Mike Shanahan and the Broncos for, for the early part of his career. Um, he, this was him at a spot where uh, he understood. Or, and, and this, the, I, I would say the big takeaway, and again, encourage people to check it out, is that both men understand how their legacies are tied to quarterback play. And that right. these are major decisions. And this was one where at, when the article was published last week, I believe it went up on uh, Sunday last weekend. We didn't know which way the 49ers were going to go with that pick. Were they going to go no. with Mac and Jones, who was by a lot of the analytics, a lot of the scouts, the safe pick, if you will, but not a sexy one. And there is a, a limited ceiling there. Or would they go for someone like Trey Lance, who's got a big time ceiling? Uh, but the floor is 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 to be determined. And that was really digging into the history of Kyle Shanahan as a coordinator and now as a head coach and then linking back to his dad. And they worked together. Uh, Kyle Shanahan was on staff with Mike Shanahan in Washington. Right. So like this is not, uh, you know, they, they, they have shared many conversations about football, not just father, son, but as you know, uh, coach and coach and colleague. So um, really, really fascinating stuff. Very well put together. Um, well, what stood out there, and, and you touched on it, and by all accounts, the entire 49ers staff didn't know right up until the pick right. was announced who they were going to go with. Kyle Shanahan kept that very close to his chest, knowing how this information getting out could have a huge effect. And, you know, that was sort of rumored all week, but the scouts, the assistant staff, nobody else knew who Kyle Shanahan was eventually going to draft. And sure enough, he did go with Trey Lance, who, as you put it, was the was the bigger gamble. You know, it, it may not work out, but if it does, it could also be a bit more of a home run, whereas, you know, Mac Jones was was a much more safe uh, safe pick with his body of work at Alabama. Uh, really quickly, something you said there triggered for me. Would your perspective on Bill Belichick change if, for the next however long he coaches, let's say Bill Belichick coaches the Patriots for another 10 mm -hmm. years, they don't win another Super Bowl, don't get back to another Super Bowl. Will that change your perspective on Bill Belichick, the coach? Because you'll look at it and say, well, he only really won with Tom Brady. And then he was never able to duplicate that once Tom No, won. because we have enough history with the guys that would have been in the, you know, the Belichick level, the, the, the coaches that he's passing on the all-time wins list uh i'm thinking of tom landry in dallas and uh yep jeez don shula in Knowles miami in Pittsburgh. as well yeah. I mean, chuck chuck Knowles and chuck Knoll. yeah Pittsburgh. those you know they they won early in their careers and like don shula was coaching the dolphins through the 90s and he had been the coach in the 70s when they won the, the unbeaten season they won a couple of super bowls and um those but Belichick's like the genius, yep. right? Like he's seen as I think he's on his own level right uh, now. Yeah. But he's only ever he's only ever really succeeded. There was that period in the middle where they kind of struggled, but they were still very mm -hmm. competitive. They just didn't get back to a Super Bowl. But imagine he just let's say he makes the playoffs 50% of the time going forward, doesn't really get past the divisional round. Like with that Well, I, I guess you could say the same thing in basketball with Greg Popovich. 
He's not one yeah, without Tim cool. Duncan. And yeah. now the team, it's Tim Duncan's been retired for a while. The, the Spurs are okay. They're not held up yeah. in the same esteem as they were. And I mean, I guess to me that just underscores the disproportionate value of the actual franchise player, the all-time franchise player. Right. If you end up with someone yeah. like Tim Duncan, if you end up with some Tim Duncan, first overall pick, Tom Brady, not a first overall pick, though that's certainly... Uh, you know, his value far exceeds what anyone would have expected from a number one overall pick. Uh, and I think, I think you put those players in most situations, they're going to have a degree of success. And if you have intelligent genius type coaches like Greg Popovich or Bill Belichick, that elevates that to a place where they're winning multiple championships and they're, they're in the running for a, a long time. And I don't hold it against the coach for not ending up with, a transcendent player again. Mm-hmm. Well, it does make me think that the the Super Bowl that Tom Brady just won in Tampa, why that's such a separator for him? Because I think it's pretty clear that Tom's only got a couple of years left here. But the fact that he was able to win outside of the Patriots, and I think there's a, a strong likelihood that they will be competitive again next year and, and take a real shot at you know another Super Bowl in Tampa. But the fact that he was able to win again outside of the Patriot system, away from Belichick, I think only increases his legacy, you know, especially when we look back on it, when we look at it on paper, the way that we do, you know, historically in reverse. I think that was a a big separator for Tom. Um, My spotlight this week, uh, I dove into, I've had it sitting on my bookshelf for a couple of weeks. It came out in the last six months, I think. Uh, Talking to Goats, the book by the longtime sports reporter, Jim Gray, who seemingly has worked everywhere, which is kind of what I remember. I remember him with NBC. I remember him with ESPN, but he was with Showtime doing Mm -hmm. boxing. And to be honest, I I picked it up, didn't think that I was going to dive too deeply into it, and I haven't put put it down all week. Each chapter is sort of broken up with a one of the greatest athletes of all time and telling stories of covering that athlete. Uh, I didn't realize that Jim had been the guest of Chuck Daly, the coach of the Dream Team in 92. Okay. Uh, Jim had left NBC at that point to go to CBS. NBC had the mm-hmm. Olympic right. So Jim Jim wasn't working. But he and Chuck Daly were so close that Chuck brought him to the Olympics as nice. his guest. In Barcelona. And no, not a bad place to in go. In Barcelona. No. And on the off days, he was taking helicopters to play golf with Michael Jordan and his relationship with a number of people throughout the sport uh, Kobe Bryant, uh, Mike Tyson, Michael Phelps, it, just incredible. And one thing I thought that was really unique, he was not a big fan of Phil Jackson okay. in Chicago. And he doesn't pull any punches. Like he's pretty, he's pretty honest about, you know, who he liked and who he didn't like, but the stories are terrific and very digestible. Basically like each story is just a chapter. Cool. And uh, yeah, talk, talking to goats, uh, Jim Gray, it's uh, it's a good read. When so, I think of Jim Gray, um, I he was the reporter for The Decision or the the, the host of The yes. Decision. And then also uh, the Mike Tyson interview. Uh, my back yes. is broken. <laughs> okay. Well, so the first chapter is about Mike Tyson and the Vander Holyfield yeah. where he bites Evander's mm-hmm. ear. He was the ringside reporter that night, had to do the covering. And he said, to this day... He's not sure that there was a bigger moment for his career. But to your point, I think he's also, you know, distinctly remembered for the decision and maybe not in a positive light because that entire production Mm -hmm. was seen as a bit of a a debacle. 
but he was also the sideline reporter for the Malice and oh the Palace God. between the Pacers <laughs> and the Pistons. And he he happened to be at certain places at certain times. He had a really memorable interview with Kobe Bryant when Kobe first decided to go public about um, his dislike for Kobe uh, for oh, yeah. Shaq in L.A., which sort of led to the breakup of you know that Lakers wow. dynasty, yep. if you will, and sent uh, and sent Shaq to mm-hmm. Miami. So anyway, it's it's interesting. It, it and he talks about how he built some of those relationships and what led to sort of him getting involved in the game. There's a chapter on Tiger Woods. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. He lets you behind the curtain a little bit. And, you know, I know that's something that um, we both yeah, enjoy. Absolutely. So that's really good. Um, let's wrap up the podcast with this. Uh, we know the Canucks are playing down the stretch here. There's some NHL stuff going on, but let's signal out uh, the Champions League. I went down a little bit of a YouTube rabbit hole this week. UEFA's got some terrific, like, combined, like, 10-minute cutdowns of, like, great Champions League finals, Champions League so semifinals. So I assume the Liverpool comeback is uh, heavily yes. involved. So I, I went deep into, like, 2005 in Istanbul, uh, Liverpool, AC Milan. I went deep into 1999, Manchester yeah, United, trouble. Bayern Munich. But there was also 2019, the two semifinals were incredible. Okay. That was the Liverpool comeback against yes. Barcelona. Yeah. And that was the Tottenham comeback against Ajax. Yes. And they were like incredible over two yeah. legs. So it kind of breaks it up a little bit. But we've got the second leg of both semifinals this week. Uh, in the first, we got Madrid-Chelsea, Real Madrid-Chelsea. Uh, and that's 1-1 after yep. the first leg. Uh, w- before we get to the second leg, your thoughts there. Who do you want to see advance? Who do you think will advance? Um, I watched a, a good chunk of that game this week. Uh, I think Chelsea will advance. Uh, they're playing at home. They started off really strong. And faded a little bit and so they'll need a bit more of that quote unquote resolve to put away mm-hmm. Real Madrid but uh, I just I find it fascinating in, in the backdrop of the Super League and all the teams being involved yep. uh, three of the four were on the list uh, the only one not is in the other game uh, Paris Saint-Germain and um, right this is and they were rumored to have links to it were they not they were sort yes. of rumored to be maybe the yes yeah they just yep. didn't take the plunge and I think they had a little bit more cover because they were the only French team to be you know so it's yep. not like it's not like in England for example if Manchester United decided not to well that means that they're letting the other five teams go and so they're they, right. you know they're kind of attached at the hip same with Barcelona and Real Madrid um but, I mean, to your point about some of the legendary uh, games of past in this tournament, uh, that's part of the reason that uh, there was such a reaction, not just from the fans, mm-hmm. but from the players. Like, the Champions League is something that they buy into. And that, that it, sure. and it's bought into from, and we talked about it on last week's pod, the competitive aspect of it, that you earn your way in mm-hmm. by finishing in a certain spot in your domestic league. And then you you go through the process of like, and this is part of the, I mean, maybe we'll get into it once more of the details come out in, in the next few weeks of the revamping the Champions League and they want to have it broken up beyond just the, the four-team group stage that it currently is. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, is it six teams? It might be six teams. Uh, anyway, <laughs> 
Uh, Arsenal has not been in Champions League in a while, so I, I'm blanking there. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating to see these teams after all the blowback of the Super League back on that stage where it came out pretty immediately that they would be banned from Champions League and that there was going to be some yeah. ramifications there. And uh, the show goes on. Uh, the biggest teams in the world, the biggest players in the world are there. And I mean, we got Madrid, Chelsea, and then Man City and PSG. Those two clubs have given a lot to try to win the Champions League and have not been capable of doing so in this big money era. And so those are... And this this is the second semifinal and Man City's up yeah. 2-1 on aggregate after the first leg heading to yes. Manchester, and correct? The, the yeah. Man, Man City, the thing that's missing from this Pep Guardiola and even prior to him, uh, the managers, Mancini, Pellegrini, that were there. And they won league titles, but they didn't get it done in the Champions League. Uh, PSG, same thing. They had been, you know, they, they've run rampant over the French League for the last few years. They've won that crown jewel of the Champions League. It's why they go and they yeah. buy Neymar. Uh, and they you know, elevate Kylian Mbappe, who was a big star for France at the World Cup. Three years ago already, 2018, hard to believe. And uh, they are, one of them is going to get knocked out. One of them is going to make the final and get that opportunity against either you know, Chelsea, another big money squad, or a big legacy squad in, in Real Madrid. But uh, yeah, fascinating matchups and uh, some of the yeah, biggest players in the world taking stage. So do we get an all England final man city Chelsea? Is that, it looks that way to me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cause I'm thinking back to Manchester United, Chelsea. And yeah, Moscow. That was, that's a famous um, one. Yeah. And I'm trying to think there was another, didn't Liverpool Tottenham. Yes. It's not an yeah. all England. Yeah. Final? Two years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's been a couple, it's not unprecedented. And the, the thing that I love about the champions league and it, we can't really equate it to any North American sports is the fact that soccer's so global there's you know there's the English league there's the Spanish league the Italian league even some of the lesser leagues the Spanish league the Dutch league um you don't in your league play you don't play some of the other best clubs in the world but the Champions League gives you best on best it's almost sort of like the Olympics but for club teams and there's nothing like it and it really is as you said it's the crown jewel of club soccer and for the clubs that have not won it uh, the prestige, just the desire to get there. And as you touched on for Man City and PSG, just to be that close, you know, like they're one step away from getting to the final. So um, should be good. Both uh, second legs of the semifinal this week. Uh, you can always catch the Champions League UEFA soccer on yeah, the zone. Yeah, no, I, I've been a zone subscriber for a couple of years now because that's also where you find the Premier League. And uh, I, I've been a fan. I've not had any, any issues with... Uh, any of the interface and uh, for me as someone who likes to watch that stuff it's definitely worth it all right that's it for us this week thanks to dave pratt for joining us if you enjoy the podcast please subscribe to our feed give us a rate give us a review thanks for listening we'll be back next week this is on air with israel fair and alex black